When we obey Jesus like he obeyed his Father, we experience an intimate, joyful relationship with him. Those who obey Jesus will sacrificially love each other just like Jesus sacrificially loved them. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, uh, we're in the Gospel of John. If you'd open your Bibles to John 15, John 15, beginning in verse 9. Uh, this is uh, the last week of Jesus' life. It's known as Passion Week, which means uh, suffering, enduring. And uh, John 13 through 17, five chapters, all take place on Thursday night. And they all take place with just hours before Jesus was crucified on Friday morning. These chapters, where we've been in, 13 through 17, are often called Jesus' farewell discourse, since this is the period of time where he's telling disciples that he's going to leave them. He tells them that one of them will betray him, another one's going to deny him. He tells them, you're all going to leave, you're all going to leave me alone and run away in fear. He tells them he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He's leaving earth, he's going back to heaven, and he tells them they can't follow him. Now, Jesus has been everything to the 12 disciples for the last three years, and now that he says he's leaving them, they are anxious, they're worried, they're borderline panicked. And so Jesus reassures them. Now these chapters, chapters 13 through 17, contain some of the most amazing promises in all of the Bible. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again, I'm going to receive you to myself, so that where I am in heaven, you can be forever living with me. And in the meanwhile, I'm going to send God the Holy Spirit to live inside you 24-7. And he will give you supernatural power and protection and wisdom and guidance to carry out the job description I'm going to give you. So this is a whole series of messages from Jesus to them that took place in a matter of a few short hours on Thursday night, uh, maybe till midnight or thereabouts. And he's reassuring them regarding their anxiety about his leaving. Now in chapter 15, where we are today, this chapter can be broken up pretty easily into three sections, and it's describing what their relationships are going to be like. So in the first 11 chapters of chapter 15, Jesus describes the disciples' relationship with God. It's a vertical relationship, the first 11 verses. Today we're going to take a look at verses 12 through 17, Really, and it's going to describe the horizontal relationship the disciples have with each other. So the first chunk of the chapter is their relationship with God. The second is the horizontal relationship with the other, each other. And the third section, 18 through 26, is the disciples' relationship with a very hostile world that hates them, that's controlled by Satan. So in the first section we looked at last week, remember Jesus describes his relationship with the disciples as the relationship between a grapevine and a branch. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. He calls us to abide in him, to remain inextricably connected, intimately connected with him like a branch remains intimately connected uh, to the grapevine. As we remain in him, as we abide in him, as we remain in fellowship with him, the supernatural life of God flows through the vine into us the branch, and he produces Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, and converts. So the branch doesn't produce anything. The branch, that's us, is the conduit for the life of the vine. The sap of the vine, if you will, flows from the vine through the branch and produces the fruit. So we don't produce fruit. He produces fruit through us. Our job is to remain connected with him to remain in him, to abide in him. In addition, God prunes away anything and everything in our life that hinders fruit bearing. Some of you are here today and you're bleeding. I can see the sap flowing out of your arms where he's been pruning you, right? 
you know, I don't like pruning. I don't mind other people being pruned. I mean, I pray for them. But when it happens to you, you go, oh, 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 this hurts, right? Yes, it does hurt. And uh, the Lord tells me, buck up, there's more coming, right? I'm not ever done pruning you until you're home. And I said, Lord, is it that bad? He says, you have no idea how much there is yet to prune. Because you got all this stuff in your life that hinders fruit bearing, right? And we talked, Andrew talked about this morning, the word of God being a sharp sword. Yeah, that's what God uses in our lives, among other things. So now, if fruit bearing depends on abiding and remaining, how do you maintain that intimate connection with Jesus so that he can bear fruit through you? Glad you asked. Let's look at verse 9. He's going to tell us how to remain intimately connected with him. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Here's how you abide. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Here's the principle. When we obey Jesus like he obeyed his Father, we experience an intimate, joyful relationship with him. When we obey Jesus like he obeyed his Father, we experience an intimate, joyful relationship with him. So the prototype, if you will, the paradigm for the believer's relationship with Jesus is the relationship with Jesus and his heavenly Father. The heavenly Father loves the Son with an infinite, eternal love, and that infinite, eternal love is the same love that Jesus has for us. So the Father doesn't love the Son any more than the Son loves you. I don't think we understand that. The Father's love for His Son is beyond our comprehension. And Jesus said, that same love that I have with the Father, I love you with that same infinite, eternal love. Now remember, the word abide means to remain. It means to stay, to continue, to hold on to, to make your home in the love of Jesus. That's that intimacy. And by the way, abiding in Jesus' infinite love is not automatic. He gives them a conditional promise. He says, if, if you obey my commandments, then you will abide in my love. Then you will be intimate with me. Then we will live together. Then I will be the source of everything you need. And Jesus said, just like I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is the model for perfect obedience and intimacy with his father, and he says, you need to obey me like I obeyed my heavenly father. While he was on earth, Jesus was continually talking about obedience to his father. In John 6, 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Why? For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You could put that on your gravestone. That'd be pretty good. I've always done the things that are pleasing to my heavenly father, right? John 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Not approximately as the Father commanded me. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. That's our standard of obedience. Jesus said, you obey me like I obey my Father, and we will have the same fellowship that I have with my Father. So Jesus didn't come to earth to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And he demonstrated that he loved the Father by obeying him. And because he loved him, he obeyed him, and therefore he experienced fellowship with him. And if we obey in the same way Jesus obeyed, we will remain connected to Jesus as we obey him. Now, this idea of love depending on obedience, that sounds really strange to modern human ears, right? See, we think human love is reciprocal. If you want a relationship with somebody, how many people does it take to maintain the relationship? Two. Both people have to agree that we're going to be in a relationship, right? You have takes two parties who agree for that relationship to work. I mean, 
Harry and Sally can't have a relationship unless they both want that relationship. And the world, of course, is filled with broken hearts of the people who love somebody who didn't get loved in return, you know, unrequited love. If someone came up to you and said, you know, we can have a beautiful friendship, but only under one condition. You have to obey everything I tell you all the time without any exceptions. I know some of you are saying, well, that's my spouse. <laughs> not really. I can hear your response. You know, that's not ever going to happen because I don't have relationship with anybody on the terms of obedience. However, Jesus is not our equal. He's our creator. He's God. And so he can set the rules for how we humans are going to have a relationship with him. And one of his rules is loving obedience. You know... You cannot withdraw from the circle of God's love through disobedience. God loves even his disobedient children. God even loves his enemies. However, our disobedience does reduce or eliminate our enjoyment of God's love. Kind of like uh, your relationship with your children. Let's suppose you're pursuing a biblical model of a relationship with your child. You as the parent, you're responsible for setting the terms of the relationship, right? You say, you're my child, here's, here's what our relationship's going to be. If you let your two-year-old set the terms of your relationship, it's going to be a mess. So you as the parent are responsible to set the terms of the relationship. By the way, that's true of your grandchildren too. When it's your house, it's your rules. Now this is my opinion, this is not God speaking, but my opinion is, your house, your rules. Somebody else's house, somebody else's rules, right? Now, the parent will always love the child, but the intimacy between the parent or the grandparent and the child depends on the child obeying the parent. Guess what? If the child is always disobeying, the parent is always disciplining, right? There's not a lot of time left for all those warm fuzzies we like, right? The love is unconditional, but the enjoyment of and the full experience of that love depends on the child's obedience. That's true of our relationship with Jesus as well. If you want to be intimate with somebody, you have to be moving in the same direction they're moving. Let's say you're taking a walk. And if you're taking a walk with someone, it means you're moving in the same direction, right? You're walking with them down a path. And you can connect with them, you can communicate with them because you're in proximity with them. You're moving in the same direction side by side. You can build a relationship through conversation because you're walking in the same direction. If someone's walking the opposite direction of you, you can say hi and pretty soon they disappear behind you and you disappear. You're not going to communicate with someone unless you're moving in the same direction. Here's a pretty obvious truth that we sometimes forget, just FYI. Jesus does not allow us to choose the direction he is going to go. Just, just making sure you got that. Let me say that again. Jesus does not allow us to determine the direction he is going to go. Our only choice is we're either going to move in the same direction Jesus is going or we're going to move in a direction we choose. Now, here's another principle. Obedience will always move you closer to Jesus. Disobedience will always move you farther away from Jesus. That makes sense? Obedience moves you closer. Disobedience moves you farther away. Now, if you treasure and value Jesus more than anything else, then you're going to want to obey him. And you're going to want to move the same direction he is, and then you experience intimacy with him and joy. See, joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, one of Satan's most effective lies, and it worked on me for years, is that if you follow Jesus, if you obey Jesus, you will have no fun. There is no pleasure in obedience because God is a killjoy. So God may be okay to get you to heaven, but if you really want pleasure, you got to do that yourself. And I did that for years. And it was one disaster after another disaster. You know, drive the bus off the road. How many times do you have to crash and burn before you say, you know, I think I'm being lied to. I think I'm being lied to. I've been following the wrong GPS. Well, that's what Satan does. He tells you God is not a good job. He doesn't want you joyful. He doesn't want you happy. The truth is, 
Disobedience to Jesus says you remain a slave to sin. How much fun is that? Uh, temporary only. The truth is obedience to Jesus frees you from sin, gives you eternal life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the max. That's what abundantly means, right? Okay, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Here's the principle. Those who obey Jesus will sacrificially love each other just like Jesus sacrificially loved them. Those who obey Jesus will sacrificially love each other just like Jesus sacrificially loved them. Remember the context. They're in the upper room. They just have the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, and the disciples are busy arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Just hours before Jesus is going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So Jesus humbled himself. He demonstrated his sacrificial love to them by doing what? Got down, took off his, his outer garments, and washed their stinking, dirty feet, right? He demonstrated sacrificial love and humility, and then he gave them a command. He says, I want you to love one another like I love you. Now, if that doesn't scare the daylights out of you, you don't know what he's talking about. Here's why. What was the Old Testament standard of love? Horizontal love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's vertical. What's the horizontal standard? Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? Most people miserably fail that standard, right? Even on their good days, they love themselves more than other people. Now Jesus is giving us an almost, it is a humanly impossible standard for love. Love each other in the same way that Jesus loved us. Well, that begs the question, how did Jesus love us? He laid down his life for us. See, love is measured by what it costs to love. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. Unless you're Charlie Brown people generally don't buy an engagement ring for their one true love from the bubblegum dispenser. If you try that as an adult, I promise you it will not go well because the sacrifice was not equivalent to the value you say that you have for your one true love. That's one of the reasons we give gifts to our friends, right? We give gifts to people we love. We want to express that love and the greater the sacrifice the greater the love. I'll give you an example. The adult Pacific female octopus is between 10 and 16 feet long, weighs between 50 and 110 pounds. They have an IQ that's definitely smarter than a cat. They have nine different brains, eight of them in the, in the tentacles and then one main one. Before the female octopus mates, they eat about 20,000 calories a day, which is quite a lot for a 50-pound animal. She mates only once, and she lays 100,000 eggs in a protected den on the seafloor. She will spend the, next, the last six months of her life tending the eggs. She never leaves the den. She never leaves the eggs. She launches them, and she dies of starvation. That would be an example of love. We've all read about pregnant moms with incurable illnesses, cancer, who refused cancer treatment because it would impact the life of their unborn child. And they said, I would die before this cancer because I want to give my child the greatest chance for life. That's sacrificial love. That's laying down your life for someone you love. Life is the most precious thing you possess, so give up your life to preserve the life of somebody else. That's the highest possible expression of love. And the very next day, within hours, Jesus demonstrated that level of love by dying on the cross in our place. Now, Jesus did a lot more than just die for his friends or his family. He died for his enemies. And that's what we were before salvation. Romans 5.8 says what? But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. By the way, sinner is not passive. That means we were at war with God. He died for his enemies. In case you haven't noticed, selfishness is pretty common and always has been. Sacrificial love has always been rare. While those who claim to love Jesus, when those who claim to love Jesus, if they sacrificially love like Jesus loved, the world pays attention because sacrificial love is so uncommon. What did Jesus say in John 13, 35, chapter before? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. The most powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ is sacrificial love on the part of his followers for each other. Let me say that again. The most powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ is sacrificial love on the part of his followers for each other. If we loved each other like Christ loved us, the testimony to the world, people would be breaking down the door to get in here because the human heart is designed to crave that kind of supernatural love. Nothing else will satisfy the soul. And when we love like Jesus loves, people see Jesus in and through us and they want to experience that love personally. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Here's the principle. Friends of Jesus love and obey him. And he transparently reveals God's eternal plans to them. Let me say that again. Friends of Jesus love and obey him. And he transparently reveals God's eternal plans to them. That was a contest some years ago in a British newspaper. And they offered a cash prize for the best definition of friend. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of them. The winning definition was, quote, a friend is someone who comes in when the rest of the world goes out. Pretty good, huh? Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now, friend is a, it's a pretty generic term, and it's a pretty relative term. You probably have many casual friends on the periphery. You got fewer close friends, and you maybe have one or two intimate friends. Many people don't have anybody that they would consider an intimate friend. You will find out who your real friends are when you get into a storm, when you get into troubles and trials and pain and suffering. Then you find out who your friends are. They will be in your life um, when there's trouble. Casual friends are what we call fair weather friends. Fair weather friends are in your life as long as the weather's fine, things are going well. But when a hurricane hits your life and you need them to help, they are often too busy to show up. Some of your so-called friends won't even change their schedule for you if it's inconvenient. You ever notice that? Those are casual friends. Those are acquaintances. You might get a birthday card from them, right? Remember the setting for this teaching. It's the night before Jesus was crucified. He's leaving. They're anxious. He reassures them. And God in human flesh calls the disciples, and us, friends. And he says, look, since we're friends, I'm telling you in advance what I am doing and why I'm doing that. I'm telling you God's plans for the future so you don't have to worry. When I'm gone, here's what's going to happen. And Jesus predicts exactly in advance what's going to happen so that when it does, they will know that he's God. They will know that he wasn't surprised. They will know that the betrayal of Judas the arrest and the crucifixion was all part of his plan. They will know that he laid down his life. No one took it from him. He's reassuring them on the basis of his deity and his full control of everything. And he says, you are my friends, and I'm going to take care of you. But before we were his friends, we were his slaves. We were his servants. John MacArthur points out our slavery is extreme. See, we have no, no independence from God's commands. This is so hard for the human heart to listen to. God owns us, 
by right of creation, he created us, and by right of redemption, he laid down his life and bought us back from the slave market of sin, and therefore he has every right to command our obedience. We say Jesus is Lord. Lord means owner. Lord means master. What do you do with a master? You obey your Lord. You obey your master. We deny ourselves, we surrender our will to him, and we devote ourselves to him and his will in our lives. A slave exists to do the will of their master. They have no will of their own. Jesus said a slave doesn't even know what their master is doing or why they're doing it. They just receive orders from the master, but they don't receive explanations. They just show up and do the work. And I can see all of you going, we fought a revolutionary war over that, and I'm going to do it again, right? We have to understand who is Lord and who is not. But Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves. I'm now calling you friends. But he says, you are my friends if, conditional, you do what I command you. Believers who obey Jesus because they love him experience intimacy with him. See, not only is our slavery extreme, our friendship's extreme. And we already talked about this. There's no greater example of friendship than laying down your life for someone you love. And Jesus died in our place, and that's friendship beyond our comprehension. A friend is intimate with the master because the master shares their goals, their plans, their heartbeat, their motives, what they want to accomplish. You know, it's interesting. The only two Old Testament people that God called friends, only two, Abraham and Moses. And yet God told both Abraham and Moses what he was going to do in the future. He called the disciples friends and he told them what he was going to do in the future. Over the last three years, Jesus has been continually revealing more of the future to his disciples. And you say, well, he hasn't told me. Yes, he has. It's right here. He wrote it down. It's a love letter, right? He tells you his plans. He tells you his heart. He tells you... He loves you. He tells you what he wants to do. He tells you what he's going to do. He has entrusted us. He has brought us in his heart, his family, as a confidant. Jesus said, you're my friends because everything the Father has told me, I've told you. I'm transparent with you. There are no secrets between Jesus and his Father. There's no secrets between Jesus and us. It's full disclosure. We did not choose to become God's friends. He took the initiative to choose us. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you that you love one another. Here's the principle. Jesus sovereignly chooses his followers and supernaturally enables them to fulfill their eternally productive assignments. That's a mouthful. Let me say that again. Jesus sovereignly chooses his followers and supernaturally enables them to fulfill their eternally productive assignments. Now, in that era, disciples often chose the rabbi they wanted to study with. You know, they would attach themselves to a human rabbi, and they would do the choosing. In this case, Jesus did the choosing. Remember how Jesus called his disciples? He went to at least some of them on the Sea of Galilee and he said, you, what? Follow me. That's it. And what did they do? He says they left everything and followed him. You know, human relationships, as we've talked about, require mutuality. Both people have to agree to pursue a relationship. But when Jesus said, I chose you, He's clarifying his position. He says, I'm sovereign, I'm God, and my choice of friends is authoritative. Some people really get bothered that God would choose, that God could choose one and not choose another. They say that's not fair. And yet they themselves demand the right to choose their own friends. Why should God not have the right to choose his own friends? He's God. You have the right to choose your friends, yes. No one's going to tell you who to have as your friends, right? You're sovereign. You have that choice. Certainly God has the right to choose. He's the Lord of the universe. Interesting. Have you noticed 
that the more powerful, wealthy, or famous the person is, the more careful they have to be about choosing their friends? When you're rich and famous and powerful, people want to get close to you. Many times for selfish reasons, for ulterior motives. They asked J. Paul Getty years, decades ago, what his greatest what the greatest curse of wealth is, or something to that effect, he says, you never know who your real friends are. Because you don't know whether it's all a show to get close to you for selfish reasons. Monarchs and rulers, the rich and famous, have always been very protective about who they let into their circle. You don't volunteer to be a friend of the king. Gee, king, I want to be your friend, you know? You are chosen for that position. By the way, in the ancient world, no one volunteered to be a slave either. You were purchased or captured, and you began to serve the master by force. Interestingly enough, in Roman times, sometimes the very closest people to the Caesar were the household slaves. And they saw him go to bed, they saw him get up, they saw him do business, they saw him conduct affairs of the kingdom. But in addition to that, all human rulers today, if you look at every president, every Elected official, they have a close circle of associates whom they trust. And they confide, and they seek an advice. And Jesus said, I'm bringing you into that friendship circle. We're not only as slaves, we're as intimate friends. And we're in that position because he chose us. Now, this is the doctrine of divine election, or divine choosing. Don't panic on me, stay with me here. This applies to everyone who is saved throughout all of history. Jesus made it clear in his time on earth, John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me, what? Does it say may come to me? It says will come to me, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 17, 2. That all to whom you have given me, given him, he may give eternal life. So everyone who is saved is chosen, elected by the Father from eternity past for salvation. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we, Christians, would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So before the creation of anything, God chose us for salvation, he then gave us to Jesus in order to save us from the slave market of sin through his death on the cross, and then he adopted us into his family, and we became his friends. Now, God chooses us, but we are also commanded to cooperate with him and cooperate with his choosing by responding by faith to his call to believe and be saved. We choose to respond to his choice. You know, the doctrine of divine sovereignty... And human responsibility will never be fully understood in this life. And it doesn't matter what analogy I give you. I'm going to give you one now, and it's incomplete. So never reduce the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility to analogy because it's incomplete. It's not going to give you a full picture, but I'm going to try and give you a little glimpse of a little bit. Someone is in a lake and they're drowning. And someone throws them a rope. Can the rope save that person by itself? No. The person in the lake has to what? Grab a hold of the rope. Can the person grabbing the rope be saved by itself? No. There has to be someone on the other end of the rope who pulls them to safety. Now, God knew from eternity past that we would be drowning in sin. He chose us for salvation, and he threw us the rope to save us from death. When we grasp the rope, we are choosing to exercise faith that he will rescue us from sin and death. God's sovereign choice and our full responsibility are both true. And I have heard people say, well, that's not fair. How do I know whether I've been chosen for salvation? I can tell you how you can know instantly. Respond to the gospel. Respond to the gospel. Turn away from your sin. Turn to faith in Christ. Trust him to forgive your sin. And then you will know that you have been chosen by God to be saved from eternity past. Respond to the gospel. 
God's sovereignty, I can't do anything about. He's sovereign. But I am responsible to respond to what he commands. And the command to repent and, and believe the gospel is a command. It's an invitation, but it's also a command. You know what's amazing? Is that God shows us knowing in advance all about us. I wouldn't choose me. Are you kidding? The older I get, the, more, the less I see that there's anything that would warrant God choosing me. God knew all about our sin, our weaknesses, our selfishness, our habits, and he chose us anyway. He chose the 12 disciples and said, follow me, and he knew in advance Judas would betray him. He knew in advance Peter would deny him. He knew in advance Thomas would doubt him. And he also knew that the night he was betrayed, all of them would flee and leave him alone in fear the night he was arrested. You say, well, why did God choose us? He chose us because we would never choose him. Romans 3.11 There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is no, not even one. And you say, well, that doesn't say why God chooses. God chooses who he chooses based on the infinite, perfect counsel of his will. I don't know why God does everything he does. He is God. He is infinite, and you and I are finite. Correct? We need to remember who we are and who he is. He has told us in Scripture everything we need to know in order to live a life that will honor and obey him and have a relationship with him. But he doesn't tell us everything because we're not capable of comprehending it, and he knows what he wants us to know and when he wants us to know. What we do know for sure, there is no inherent value in us that merits his choice of us. None of us can say, well, he chose me because I am good at blah, blah, blah. Or at least I don't do blah, blah, blah. None of that matters. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He chooses us because he chooses us. By the way, gentlemen, I'm going to give you a, a good tip here. It will improve your marriage enormously. And most of you need improvement, I know that. When your spouse, if your spouse ever says, why do you love me? That is a trick question. <laughs> Think very carefully before you answer it. If you say, well, I love you because um, we have a lot of fun together. I love you because you have a wonderful personality. I love you because um, you have a really good job. You bring a lot of money into the family. I love you because you're a wonderful mother to our children. I love you because you take care of me and I need him taken care of because I'm so useless without you. I mean, suck it up here, right? Here's the problem with that any answer you give. Here's the problem with any answer you give. It's all conditional. What happens if she no longer has a job? By the way, everything I'm saying works to the husband, and you, the wife can say the same thing, right? This is spousal. It's all conditional. So you say what God says. I love you because I love you. Period. There is nothing you can do that will not cause me to love you. That's unconditional. That is loving your spouse or your children or your niece or your nephew. Whatever. Don't just put it to marriage, whatever it happens to be. But it's a choice and a commitment you make irrespective of the behavior of the loved one. And you say, Brad, you don't understand. I'm way too selfish. There is no way I can love them like that. Yeah, I know. God knows too, but he will teach you as he fills you with his spirit, he will give you supernatural love for the people he brings into your life. In the same way that he loves you unconditionally, 
He will work through you as the branch to love other people with his supernatural love. What it means, you have to stop depending on your own love because it's not really not that good. We are conditional people. When I married Mary and I told her, babes, you deserve far more love than I can give you. You deserve unconditional love, and I'm a selfish little pig, and you're not going to get it from me unless, uh, seriously, unless the Holy Spirit teaches me to love you, and I'm convinced he will because I've committed my life to him. He will teach me to give you the love you deserve. And the same thing works for your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews and your friends and whoever that schmuck you live next door to or you work with. It doesn't matter. He will give you the love. Yeah, I know. You know who I'm talking about. By the way, they say the same thing about you. But they need the love of Jesus and the choice, the decision to love. Jesus loves us with that unconditional love. And he says, I want you to love each other with that unconditional love. By the way, the other reason God chooses and we don't choose is because he chooses the things the world despises. He chooses the things the world devalues. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says what? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Why? So that no human may boast before God. So you look and you say, God, why did you choose me? I mean, I, have, I bring nothing to the table. I'm a sinner. I bring my sin to the table. I bring my brokenness. He said, that's the point. When I accomplish supernatural things through you as the branch and you bear fruit, I bear fruit through you, and the world looks at your love and says, how can you love me without supernatural love? That's the love of Jesus that's going through you, the branch, to them. And it's addictive to the people who hunger and thirst for it. So Jesus said, I chose you, but that's knowledge. He said, I appointed you. He chose us for salvation, and he appoints us for a commission, an assignment. After we've been saved, Jesus appoints us, he selects us, he gives us a task to what? Go and fulfill God's eternal purpose for our lives. Just before his ascension, Jesus gave his disciples what we call the, what? Great commission. The great assignment, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that's pretty, it says all, not some, all. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I had a friend of mine that didn't fly on airplanes because she said, Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, not high, I'm with you always. I said, but you trust him on the train and Amtrak, you know, I mean, look at the safety records of trains versus planes. I mean, sorry, you know. And you, I want you to notice something. Jesus never commands his disciples to stop, right? He doesn't say, stop, therefore, and make this. He says, go. The assumption is, having gone. So he assumes and commands that you go and make disciples. So after he chooses to save us, he assigns us a supernatural task of making disciples, telling people why and how to be saved. Jesus desires that our fruit, that's the spiritual results he produces through us, will remain for all eternity. By the way, what's remain mean? It means abide. It means last. It means continue. It means endure. So Jesus wants your labor, your work, your abiding, and the fruit-bearing he does through you to what? Last forever. Don't trade your life for anything less. People's souls live forever. And there's no greater value than spending eternity with God in heaven. You know, Revelation 14, 13 says that the deeds that Christians do in this life will Follow them, how long? Throughout eternity. What you do here for Jesus counts forever. And what does Satan say? Well, invest your life in the stuff of this life. You know, you need more, you need more stuff that's going for the landfill. Have you ever noticed that everything in this life breaks I know your appliance repairman is your favorite guy or gal because you see him all the time, right? Stuff in this life breaks. Relationships break. 
You look in the mirror in the morning and you go, yeah, this carcass is breaking. And the stuff you buy at the store breaks. And trees need pruning and things need oiling and because this life is headed for the landfill. My favorite quote relationship to this is C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, this is before Aslan comes, he says, it's always winter and never Christmas. Right? That's this life. Without Christ, it's always winter. There's lots of snow, but there's never Christmas. There's nothing to celebrate that's going to last. It is amazing to me that the king of the universe would choose us, undeserving, unqualified slaves, to be friends. We have no capacity to perform the job description he, he gave us, but he says, I'm going to give you divine help. The su supernatural power of the Holy Spirit himself will work in you 24-7 and enable you to complete the work he called you to do. And then he gave us this incredible promise. He says, when you are doing what God commissioned you to do, you can ask for help, and I promise I will answer. How amazing is it that we can talk... We sinners, saved by grace, redeemed and made righteous through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can talk with God anytime, anywhere, any place, under any circumstance. It, it, that's access. You know, if you called a friend up at 2 in the morning and said, I've got something on my heart I need to talk. You know, I don't know if they're really going to be awake for you. Even if they love you, they might go, okay, well, let's give it a shot here. At 2.30 in the morning, you know, after you go potty and can't go back to sleep, you can talk to Jesus, I know you, and he listens. He is fully present. He doesn't ever fall asleep on you. That's intimacy, that's friendship. And he says, talk to me. And prayer is a privilege we often underutilize. No one understands or cares like Jesus. There's an old hymn titled, you know it, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry. How much? Do you really believe that? Everything? Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I'm amazed at the number of things that I fail to pray about. You know why? Because I think I can handle them on my own. Now that is arrogance. It's also stupid. It's overvaluing my abilities and undervaluing God's abilities. Here's my comment. Pray first, ask questions later. Pray first, ask questions later. How do you know the right questions to ask until you pray first? Have you ever come to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't even know what to ask for. I do not know what to ask for. I'm so confused. Guess what? The Holy Spirit will pray for you, Romans 8, with groanings too deep for words. You can say, Lord, I don't even know what the right outcome is. That's right. And he does, and he will show us the way. So when we obey Jesus, we remain intimately connected with him, and we experience his love and joy. And as a result of being intimately connected with Jesus, Verse 2 of this chapter tells us we're going to produce spiritual fruit. We will be pruned by our Heavenly Father. Our prayers will be answered, verse 7. We will love Jesus and other believers. We've talked about today, verse 9, 12, and 13, and we will experience joy. Let me summarize, and then Tom will come up and do a prayer and praise. Principle 1. When we obey Jesus like he obeyed his Father, we experience an intimate, joyful relationship with him. Now, the diagnostic on this is real simple. If I'm not experiencing an intimate, joyful relationship with him, is it possible that there's an area of my life I'm not obedient in? By the way, I'm not saying you don't go through dry spells. You can be perfectly obedient in their dry spells. But it's always a good diagnostic question to say, Lord, is there anything in my life? So when I confess sins, I routinely say, Lord, I know there's things in my heart I don't even know. Open my eyes to show me so I can confess them. By the way, he always is faithful. And it's painful. 
I didn't know I had the sin. I asked him, Lord, show me so I could confess it and not carry this cancer around. He will show you. And when you confess it, you're free of one more thing. Number two, those who obey Jesus will sacrificially love each other just like Jesus sacrificially loved them. If you're struggling with sacrificial love, look at the Savior and remember how much he loved you. Number three, friends of Jesus love and obey him and he transparently reveals God's eternal plan to them. So Jesus said, you're my friends and I open everything to you. You know what the implication is? You are his friend. What kind of a friend are you to him? How transparent are you with him? And you say, well, Brad, you don't understand. He knows anyway. Yes, but he wants you to hear you say it. He wants to hear you say it. Be open with him. Tell him everything. And then lastly, Jesus sovereignly chooses his followers and supernaturally enables them to fulfill their eternally productive assignments. So we have an assignment to take the gospel to the nations. By the way, the nations could be your next door neighbor. Could be somebody you work with. Could be your children or grandchildren. It could be someone overseas. It could be someone on the internet. Wherever the Lord has you to reach out with his love and bear fruit in the life of another person, that's your calling. That's your great commission. And you have the Holy Spirit and you have divine prayer that you can ask for anything you need to help. And he says, I will answer that prayer and enable you to fulfill that commission. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.